Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, we've almost made it. We have entered the fifth week of Lent, and through Lent, we've been walking with Jesus through the wilderness. Uh, We're approaching Palm Sunday and Holy Week starting next week, and we've been journeying through the season of Lent through through a, a period of slowing down, of becoming aware of our own frailty, of our own need. And as we've been doing this, we've been engaging in a Lenten reading, uh, the book Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe. If you haven't gotten a chance to pick up this book yet, I I highly recommend it. It's just dense with all of these good little nuggets, and I find myself going back and reading and rereading pieces of it over and over. And one of the key messages in the book is that in our moments of need, of weakness, uh, God provides hope in the midst of that suffering. And that can unlock our ability to experience true interior freedom. But there's danger in writing a book about hope in the midst of suffering. And that danger is that not all suffering is alike, right? Uh, Tolstoy famously wrote in Anna Karenina that all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. We don't experience suffering in the same way. Sometimes to us, suffering is little more than a a transient inconvenience, a, a speed bump on the road of life. And sometimes suffering is this dark, oppressive presence that is pushing in on us from all sides. But in those darkest moments of suffering, there's, there's a danger that in talking about hope, these, the words can amount to little more than like mere spiritual platitudes and, and holy hand-waving. There's a, there's a risk that any words we try in, to introduce when someone's in a season of suffering is just like a, a proverbial pat on the head. They're there. If you just trust God a little bit more, everything's going to feel better, and things will be good again, and you'll have hope. But when we're in deep moments of suffering, we, we don't always want answers, do we? Or at least we don't want answers from other people. Maybe we want answers from God, but we don't always get those either. So in today's passages from Ezekiel and John's gospel, we get a picture of a God who's capable of bringing life out of seemingly hopeless death. And this morning, as fallen humans, as people who have been born into spiritual death, who endure suffering as part of our natural existence, I want to take a look at how our triune God responds to death in these passages in Ezekiel and John, and how his response provides a means for us to experience true freedom through all types of suffering. Now, if you read any book on writing sermons, the first thing it will tell you is that you need to have a clear structure, a beginning, a middle, and an end, an introduction, three alliterated bullet points, and a conclusion, maybe. This sermon's not going to have any of that. The structure of this sermon is going to be beginning, middle, beginning, And some of you might be afraid that that means I'm going to talk all day. That is for me to know and you to find out. If you you would like to follow along, though, we're going to be starting in Ezekiel 37, so feel free to open up your Bibles there. Uh, We're going to reread some of the words that James read for us this morning. But before we get there, we have to go back to the first beginning. So, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right there, two verses into the Hebrew Scriptures, we learn that it's not just God sitting at some distance creating things, but the Spirit is there too. And the Spirit is present in the midst of this creation, operating as, as this agent, as this agent of creation with God. Now, if we uh, look at the actual word here in the Hebrew for spirit, we can see that the word is ruach. This is a word that you may have heard before if you studied any biblical Hebrew. It's a really common word in the Old Testament, used hundreds of times across the Hebrew scriptures. And the interesting thing about ruach is that it actually has three meanings in the Hebrew. It can mean spirit, but it can also mean breath or wind. Spirit, breath, wind, all wrapped together in this one word in the Hebrew. So in Genesis 1, we see this picture of God's spirit, breath, wind, hovering over the face of the waters with God as all things are being created. But then we later learn as we read through Genesis that God puts his breath of life into us too. In Genesis 6, the Lord says, My spirit, my ruach, shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. So the spirit, breath, wind thing is something that God also gives to us. But not just to us, actually all of his creatures. In Genesis 7, when we read about the animals going into the ark, it says they went two by two of all flesh in which there was the ruach, the breath of life. And later after the flood, it says everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the ruach, died. In whose nostrils was the breath of life. Does that language sound familiar? That comes straight from Genesis 2 where God formed man out of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's this animating life force, ruach. Now, if we look elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that ruach is actually not just an animating life force. We also see examples of it in Exodus, for example, uh, with the appointment and gifting of Bezalel, who's a guy who it says was filled with the Ruach of God to have craftsmanship in helping construct the tabernacle. So it's like this, this thing that's been appointed to him for a time for a particular task. And in Job, we read the longing cry of someone who's had their Ruach crushed. In Psalms, we read words of comfort to those who are broken in Ruach. So with all of this context, we can now approach Ezekiel 37 and see how it informs our reading. This is perhaps the best-known passage in all of Ezekiel, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. The first thing that comes across, or one of the first things, is that these were very dry bones. It's, this is, they really want this to come across in the text, the writer. Behold, they were very dry, it says. So whoever these bones belong to is long gone. There is no sign of life left in them. There is absolutely, they're beyond hope for any sort of life at this point. And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over these dry bones in verse 6 to say, behold, I will cause breath, ruach, to enter you and you shall live. And I'll lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put ruach in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Then after this, we get this wild description of these bones coming together and sinews being placed on them and flesh and skin covering them. This is like a description of a body decomposing but happening in reverse, recomposing. 
But still, it said, these bodies had no ruach until verse 9, God instructs Ezekiel to prophesy to the ruach and say, come from the four winds, O breath, the four ruachs, O ruach, (laughs) and breathe on these slain that they may live. And he does, and a great army of people stands up and comes back to life. That is nuts. Like, this is this is like zombie stuff right here. I, I, when I read this, I feel like this is a scene from Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. I'm pretty sure it's in one of the films. Um, it's just wild. And if you look elsewhere, like if, if you ever just want something to do for fun, sit down and read Ezekiel because there is so much just incredible, beautiful, and frankly crazy imagery in that book. But to get at why this is significant to us today, we need to remember what was going on in Israel at the time. So this was at the time of the Babylonian exile. Judeans were being deported, forced out of their homeland, including Ezekiel. And in chapter 33, just before this, Ezekiel learns that Jerusalem had just fallen. And Ezekiel's other prophecies in the book have made it clear that all this stuff is happening as a result of Israel's idolatry and their injustice. And yet again, this is an example of this pattern we see over and over in the Old Testament where Israel finds themselves in a place where they've broken their covenant with Yahweh and they've suffered devastating consequences, and they are found wondering if things can ever possibly be made right again. And so all of this happens. God gives this vision to Ezekiel, and then in verse 11, Yahweh actually gives a direct explanation to Ezekiel for what the vision meant. So if you want to read along with me in verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from my graves, O my people, from your graves, O my people, and bring you to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. Verse 14, I will put my ruach within you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So we see here that this vision is a promise of restoration that God is giving to Israel. And this also is coming on the heels of Ezekiel 36, which Jordan mentioned a few weeks ago, where God promised to sprinkle his people with clean water, to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and to put a new ruach in them. So, to get to our question that I brought up at the beginning, how is God responding to death here? Well, we get a picture here of Yahweh's promise to rescue his people from death and hopelessness and restore them to the land of Israel. And how is he going to do this? By raising their dry bones out of the dust and breathing new life into them, just as he formed Adam out of the dust in Genesis 2. So what Yahweh is promising to Israel here is an act of new creation. He's promising them a rebirth. So it's clear to see now if we shift ahead to John and our reading in Lazarus today, there's some clear parallel imagery going on here with this reading from Ezekiel and in John. John, uh, uh, in John, the raising of Lazarus is another example of God bringing life out of hopeless death. And I mean hopeless. It says in the text, Lazarus had been dead for four days by the time Jesus got to him. Martha was worried about opening the tomb. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, she says. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. <laughs> and yet, Jesus prays to God, and he breathes a new life into the bones of Lazarus. Lazarus is reborn. So how's God responding to death here? Well, 
We see clearly earlier in the passage Jesus asserting his divinity in no uncertain terms to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. He makes it clear that this is being done, this, this has happened to Lazarus so that God may be glorified. But then we also see these tender moments of Jesus' humanity in the text. Jesus enters into Mary and Martha's suffering. Jesus wept. He mourns with them. See, when, when we read this passage, which is familiar to a lot of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we tend to focus on what the raising of Lazarus meant for Lazarus, right? This is great, a new chance at life, he doesn't have to be dead anymore, or, or maybe we focus on what it means for Mary and Martha, they got their beloved brother back. But what we don't often talk about is what the raising of Lazarus meant for Jesus. See, there's this pattern over and over in John where we see Jesus performing signs or making claims about his own divinity, and people just totally misunderstand. They don't get the point. Or they get angry and conspire against him. And in fact, we read in chapter 10, just before this passage about Lazarus, that Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was talking in the temple about being one with the Father, and they tried to stone him. They basically ran him out of town. And now Jesus has returned to Bethany, only two miles away from Jerusalem. And not only that, he knows that in a few days, like any good Jew, he's going to be returning to Jerusalem for the upcoming Passover. So Jesus, after being run out of town, run out of Jerusalem for making these statements about his divinity, has showed back up dangerously close to Jerusalem and the people who were threatening to kill him there, and he performs a miracle and calls himself the resurrection and the life and claims to have been sent by God. He doubles down. In doing this, in raising Lazarus, Jesus is cementing the inevitability of his own death. And in fact, we see right after this in verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees agree that they're going to arrest him next time he's in Jerusalem. So there's a sense in which the raising of Lazarus was a sacrificial act. It, it was a picture of Jesus laying down his own life so that new life could be breathed into his cherished friend. And it gets even better when we look at what happens next after Jesus' death. But in order to unpack that, this is where we need to go back once again to the beginning. This time in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we already established the Spirit of God was there in the very beginning, in Genesis. But now John is telling us the Word was there too. And the Word was somehow both with God and was God. And all of everything was made through the Word. And this Word, this light of the world, verse 10 in John 1, was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world didn't know Him. And that word ultimately became flesh and dwelt among us. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, as our creed says. In John 3, the passage with Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again, born of spirit and of water to enter the kingdom of God. And there's this line in John 3 where he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, is born of the Spirit, and so he is Spirit, too. 
This is reinforced in Jesus' baptism where we have this picture of the Father and Jesus, and in John it says, he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. So this Word, who was there in the beginning with the Spirit and with God, they, they were all participating together in this divine act of collaborative creation. This Word is God and is Spirit. The Trinity, man. could talk about that for hours, but I won't. <laughs> so in John 19, when Jesus dies, in verse 30 it says, He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. And this gets really interesting when we look at John 20, what happens in the resurrection when Jesus appears to his disciples who were in hiding. He says, peace be with you. He shows them the wounds on his hands and on his side. And in John 20, 22, it says, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So this gives us a really interesting link back to Genesis 2. Because if you look at the Greek here, the Greek word used for breathed, this is the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. And if we look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see that this word is used very rarely, only about maybe six times. Half of those times have something to do with bringing forth new life or with resurrection. And one of the times we get this word back in Genesis is in Genesis 2. Verse 7, the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. Same verb as Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. We also, interestingly, see this word in Ezekiel 37. When verse 9, it says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So in the language here, John in this passage about Jesus breathing out the Spirit to the disciples, John's pointing us back to the beginning when God breathed new life into Adam. He's also pointing us to Ezekiel, to, to the God who promised to form Israel into a new creation by breathing new life into their dry bones. And then John is basically saying that this God from the Old Testament, this is the same one who would ultimately come to dwell among us and be filled with the Spirit and breathe new life into those who are suffering, who are hopelessly dead. This is the God who would ultimately breathe his last breath to save Lazarus, to save us. In the beginning, God's breath of life was breathed into human nostrils, and in the new beginning, the new creation, the divine breath, God's Spirit, his Ruach, was breathed out through Jesus to his disciples and ultimately to all of his followers at Pentecost, where, may I point out, it says the Spirit is described as having the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Oh, this is so good. The Bible is so cool. You can't make this stuff up. So the Spirit, is, it's no longer just some breath, some animating life force, or this special thing that we're given just for a particular occasion as we read in the Old Testament. We can now be born of the Spirit, just like Jesus was, and His Spirit dwells in us always. So we can start to connect the dots with how this can help unlock our ability to experience true interior freedom. To quote Jacques Philippe here from the beginning in part one, he says, true freedom resides in the possibility of believing, hoping, and loving in all circumstances thanks to the assistance of the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. He's quoting Romans 8 there. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with gro for us 
with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever experienced weakness, experienced suffering like that, where you have no words, you need something deeper? I was having lunch a few weeks ago with uh, John Hodges. Uh, We were talking about work. I love talking with John about work because he operates in a totally different universe from me. I sit at my computer all day. John is a firefighter, a first responder. He drives the fire truck, which I still can't get over the coolness of that. Um, And John was reflecting on what it's like to show up at the scene of an emergency where someone has been hurt. Because he drives the truck, he's not typically the very first person to walk into the room. So he often finds himself in this position where he's there to talk to the family members of the victim who's being cared for. And John said that he doesn't remember most of his calls because there are just so many of them, but he commented to me that the suicides are the ones that he never forgets. He said that when he's standing there with the mother of a child who's just taken their own life, there are no amount of words There are no reassurances that he can offer someone who's experiencing that kind of trauma. The only thing you can do in moments of suffering like that is be there, be present. Some of you may have experienced suffering like that. You've had well-intentioned people tell you things are going to be okay. God has a bigger plan. If you just have a little more faith or hope or love, somehow you'll feel better. You'll feel free. And that's where Jacques Philippe is careful to include this critical detail that none of this is possible without the assistance of the Holy Spirit, without the reminder that God's Ruach has breathed new life into our dry bones, has given us new life like Lazarus, has brought us out of our spiritual death through the Word made flesh, the one who gave his last breath so that we could breathe our first as a new creation, as those born again. The interesting thing about breath is it's, it's the first thing that we receive in this world. If you've ever been there when a baby's born, what happens? The doctor or the midwife, they take that bulb syringe, clear out the baby's mouth so that they can open their mouth and receive their first breath. Your, your breath is not something that originates from you. It's a gift that's given to you. It's something you need in order to thrive and in order to survive, but it has to be received. Friends, Jesus gave his very life so that you could be born again and receive his Ruach, the Spirit, your first breath as a new child of God and experience true freedom in him. There is nothing you need to do or think or say. You need only to open yourself to receive his blessing of life. As we sing in the hymn, In Christ Alone, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. So my prayer for you all today is that when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when you are tired and weary and hopeless, when you are dust, may you be awakened to the presence of the Spirit which is in you. And when you have suffering that cannot be fixed by the right words, or some specific way of praying, or some specific way of thinking, may you simply open yourself up to receive the Spirit who's promised to intercede for you with groanings too deep for words. And as you inhale 
And as you exhale, may it serve as a reminder of the immediacy of the Spirit and as a reassurance that you are not alone. The Ruach of God, which has been there from the very beginning of time, is with you, is in you, and is no further than your own breath if you have opened yourself up to receive it. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the table this morning to receive, may we open ourselves up to your ministry and become aware of your presence. Give us the courage to allow ourselves to be ministered to. And in doing that, may we be offered a glimpse of what true interior freedom can really look like in your presence. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.